Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, if you're looking for something fun to do outside this time of year, you could go searching for antler sheds. We'll get some advice on how to do it. But first, the winter of 1918 was brutal, not because of the weather, but because the world was in the grips of an influenza pandemic that took at least 50 million lives. No place was safe from this highly contagious illness, and doctors everywhere were doing their best to keep their patients alive. Dr. Pierre Sarder lived in Tatanka, Iowa, and served patients in rural Kasuth County. Even though more than a 1,000 of his patients got sick, he only lost five of them. Dr. Sarder's stories have been passed down through his family, and he kept a treasure trove of records that has made it possible for his granddaughter to tell his story in the book When Winter Came, A Country Doctor's Journey to Fight the Flu Pandemic of 1918. Mary Beth Sarder Obermeyer will be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m., and she is on the line with me now. Hello, Mary Beth. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. And You were 17 years old when your grandfather died, so you did have an opportunity to know him, even though you were a child. It seems clear that even though you were a child, you really already understood that he was a a truly remarkable man. (laughs) Well, my mother said uh, I took inventory of everything, and he was an amazing storyteller. And he was in my home on Sunday afternoons after 1950. So And my dad tape-recorded him on his reel-to-reel machine, so I had recordings of him, and I had him face-to-face, and and he wrote about what he did. And so I just had a treasure trove of ways to know him. You, uh, speaking of the treasure trove of ways to know him, your, your family obviously valued stories and passed them down through the years, but you also are the keeper of your grandfather's lockbox. Tell me about that. Well, my earliest memory of that box, which had all of his important papers in it, was on his lap when he would open it And stories came up out of it. He would pick up a paper and he'd tell me about crossing the ocean on a boat and about growing up in Luxembourg and the castles and the flowers. And I thought that box was magic. I mean, real magic, not fairy tales. So over the years, we moved into a new house and he gave the box to my dad and my dad, who was also a doctor, added his papers. It changed to a metal box with a better lock, and it was fireproof, and it was bigger, but it still held stories. Then fast forward to my dad is nearing 100 years old, and uh, my brother-in-law, who was going to manage the estate, gave me the box and said, copy the contents for your sisters and brother. And so I did, and then I put it away, and then I looked at again, and I saw this thrills of my life, and I started reading it in his old world script. It's the story of the flu. So that's the story. I almost named the book The Box. (laughs) It was so (laughs) central to, 
you know, what I experienced with him. Well, and, and let's talk about this manuscript that was in the box. Mm. And calling it Thrills of My Life seems like kind of an, an odd title, although you <laughs> you do endeavor to understand. He, he clearly felt like this was such an important, pivotal moment in his life and his career. Mm-hmm. But this was a relatively short document. Tell me what you found inside it. He would tell patient by patient what happened when he visited them and what the problems were and how he handled them and their bravery. And that's, he focused on that and didn't name them except for the first one, which he called Patient Zero. She came on a train into his town of Taitanka. Um, that essentially is it, but it's so direct and so vivid, and you, oh, no, you didn't have your wife in the same bed while you had the flu, did you? And no, you didn't keep the baby in the bed. You only moved it to the corner of the room. It's just, you're just pulling for these patients and pulling for him because... As we went through editing and this book with Mayo Clinic, as I did with Mayo Clinic Press, we found ourselves in our own pandemic, which we didn't know was going to happen. Now we're facing the same things he's facing. The people who you have to tell them to wear a mask and you have to tell them to isolate, you have to move the family out, you have to train a caretaker, and there's a little pushback from people, but... A Mayo doctor credited the town of Taitanka as being what made this go forward. They cooperated. They turned, well, his charisma maybe too, but they turned into a little army and fought that flu, and they won. (laughs) Well, and and we'll talk more about his approach, but I want to know what made you decide to tell this story. You have these family stories. You have this family history. What made you think, I need to do something with this story, to share it with others? It, it survived 1,800 pages of stand-alone scenes that I wrote from 1989 on when I decided, wait, I have a journalism degree. I should be writing because I'd been doing, I'd been dancing and doing events and all these things. But three books came out before this book, and they were on things that were my story, uh, music and dance, and they came out all in one year, 2011. And when that was over, I'm looking, and I've been showing my dad these scenes, and I'm thinking, this is a book, and I don't even need to look for the theme of it. That man had so much character that people followed him. I have a story, and from then on, it was just shot out of a gun. <laughs> well, okay, shot out of a gun, although it took a lot of years from, from yes. start to finish. Yes, well, I, I wrote seven drafts. Wow, wow. <laughs> because different people would look at it and see different things, like maybe you don't need the Luxembourg part, but I felt that shaped his character. That's the small town he grew up in and the way his father cared for his chronic earache, got him a specialist. He was a farmer and he sent this child after his mother died to a town to have his ear treated. And then someone would say, well, I don't think we should go into this much science. Well, I didn't think I had that much. I'm not a doctor. 
who Mayo went into some science showing, deepening wh- what some of these scenes had in them, and someone would say, oh, just do the journal, put it between two covers. And so I kept trying different ways of writing it. One said, do it from your grandma's point of view. And then I thought, oh, I underdeveloped her character. So then I started with, she was an amazing woman. I didn't quite capture her. She's the one that stayed home with six children through the flu. So it kept changing and changing until one day um, a friend I'd had since 1989 uh, from a book festival uh, said he's now working at Mayo and he's he's a book he's a book guru of the twin David Yunowski and he said I'm at Mayo can I show this manuscript to Mayo Clinic Press and I just went oh please <laughs> I think they will see all these parts and it turned out that the nun who raised the money for the first Mayo Clinic was from Luxembourg a few miles from where Pierre grew up wow. So it was just a match, and from then on, it, it's been just amazing because my grandfather went, Mayo solved his problem when he arrived in Iowa. No one trusted surgery. He couldn't do it, and he'd say, my heart break because he would lose someone to an appendix. Then he went to Mayo Clinic, and the Mayo Clinic treated them as a team of doctors, the patient felt good. Pierre thought it was a good idea, and they they call it submitted to surgery. And then he went home and he did tonsils every Tuesday on his kitchen table. <laughs> so it, that was a big start. Well, let's uh, let's talk a, a little bit more about your grandfather and where he came from. So you mentioned that he was mm-hmm. from Luxembourg, mm-hmm. and uh, although he was sick as a child and mm-hmm. and went through a, an extensive treatment to solve mm-hmm. his problem with his ears, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that inspired him even then to start thinking about becoming a doctor. Getting an education was not a given at that time, but his mm-hmm. father decided that. Pierre would be the one child in the family that would be educated. So he invested in him, but but Pierre really had to do this all on his own, didn't he? He did. He didn't hear well uh, when he was sent to this doctor. He stayed in a boarding house in the second largest city with a brother for a year while it was treated. That father was really caring for him when he did that. He was a farmer, and this child was too frail to work on the farm, so he did that. But Pierre had to follow the directions, and that doctor must have been magical to him because when he left there at 12, he was there a year, he decided he wanted to be a doctor, and how that would happen, (laughs) no one knew. But the father then tutored him, had him tutored in the home. That's the only year he lived in his home because when he got into, he had to test into this really elite, I mean a wonderful education and he did, and he graduated. We have the program. He's the top of his class. He worked hard on that and then went to the next level, and then the two brothers who are already in America um, asked him to come So, right. put so him he, through medical school. He decides. So, yes, he did. He did. He, yes, he did focus from 11 on. <laughs> and he traveled to the United States ended up in Chicago where his brothers were living and and lived with one of his brothers who not only agreed to 
invite him into his home, but also the brothers work together to pay for his tuition and take mm-hmm. care of him so he could get that education. So although he spent so much time on his own, everybody in the family wanted him to be able to, to achieve that. And Mary Beth, we're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment, and we will talk about what took your grandfather to rural Iowa to practice as a doctor, and also that time in 1918 and 1919 during the flu pandemic that took over 50 million lives worldwide. Dr. Pierre Sarter was serving rural Kasuth County, and even though more than a 1,000 of his patients got sick, he only lost five of them. Really remarkable results. His story is told in the new book, When Winter Came, A Country Doctor's Journey to Fight the Flu Pandemic of 1918 by his granddaughter, Mary Beth Sarter Obermeyer. And she'll be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. More in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me right now is Mary Beth Sarter Obermeyer. She is the author of the book When Winter Came, A Country Doctor's Journey to Fight the Flu Pandemic of 1918. It is a book about her grandfather, Dr. Pierre Sarter, who lived in Tatanka, Iowa, and served patients in rural Kasuth County. He had remarkable results as a doctor during the flu pandemic because, of course, we know that flu pandemic reached everywhere, rural areas were not safe. Even though more than a thousand of his patients got sick, he lost only five of them. And Mary Beth, so we we were summarizing very quickly your grandfather's life. He makes it to Chicago. He goes to medical school. He becomes a doctor. And he could have stayed in Chicago and practiced. At some point, he has this idea that he wants to go to rural Iowa and be a doctor there. Do you have an understanding of why that appealed to him so much? I paused writing the book thinking, Grandpa, I think you, you just arrived. You you And there's a love story in this part. He falls in love with a, a woman whose father has all these greenhouses in Chicago, and he has a new world family because he knows he'll never see his his original family again. So, Grandpa, <laughs> he keeps thinking right while he's in medical school, he would like to move to a smaller town. And in his head, he was aware of the cholera epidemic. It was in Paris when he was in Luxembourg, but it was generations before but he knew about it, and in his mind, he's thinking it's going to come again, and I'm going to fight it, and that was in his head. And he saw Chicago as people so close together that he didn't know how he would do that, but he thought he could if he just got out to the Iowa Prairie, and there was a town 
that needed a Catholic German-speaking doctor, and he spoke five languages, English is fifth, and he wanted to go. And Mary, the love of his life, was married now and a child, and she was fine. She was one of nine children, and she she would like to go. So, Even though did. her family really, really, really didn't want that to happen. <laughs> well, I didn't write that into it because I don't know that, but I can't imagine that they wanted her to leave. They took a portrait of her right before she left, and um, it, it must have been difficult. They, I didn't hear that they complained about it, and she wanted to go. There weren't a lot of complainers in this group, <laughs> and and it is a um, nonfiction, so I can't put words in right. anyone's mouth. But I I think the oldest daughter leaving with the first grandchild was probably heartbreaking. So your grandparents moved to Iowa. They first moved to Bancroft, Iowa, later mm-hmm. to Tatanka, and mm-hmm. and build a large, beautiful family there. They ended up having six children, right? Right, correct, and. Your grandfather's practice in Bancroft was a successful practice. What then made him want to go to an even smaller place <laughs> there, well, <laughs> and where he would be the only doctor? Um, he loved Bancroft, so that is a hard, a hard one to picture. He, he was so happy there. Uh, it was... 100% Catholic, and immigrants tend to go where their religion and their ethnic group is, and German-speaking, everything was... But in Taitanka, not that far away, the doctor was leaving, and it was because that Algona town nearby had a hospital, and Taitanka had no hospital. When you have an emergency, it's hard to get, even if it's that close, so he saw that, and he thought he should, and he moved six children who were age 4 to 18 and well-established, the family, but it's not going to be that far away, I guess. So he did move, and and that he called it My Taitanka. He just embraced that town. And the problem was he, there were almost no Catholics in Taitanka, and it didn't faze him, and apparently it, it Taitanka, I have a dozen doctor letters later in his life when he was named Iowa General Practitioner of the Year by the Iowa State Medical Society. They told of how he helped patients by praying in their own religion and getting their own minister in, and that because he valued his own religion so much, he valued theirs. That's a big jump in any decade to make. Right. So that was part of it, but he he loved that that town. And he seemed to really really love the practice of being a country doctor. He loved going to people's homes to treat mm-hmm. them, which must have been such and and you write a great deal about this was incredibly hard work because there was so much traveling, so much time on the road and during the flu pandemic he was out from early morning to late at night, going from home to home to home to care for people. He, he really seemed to value the opportunity to treat people in such an intimate way, didn't he? That's why he was a general practitioner. He would treat all of the people. And, oh, there was another point I was going to make in there about... Um, 
oh, he saw it an advantage to be the only doctor in the town because the flu was beginning and he would be in complete control. He's the only one they're turning to. He could make his rules, and he did. And in Bancroft, he would have been one of several doctors and not not had that kind of cooperation. Right. Well, and you, you already mentioned that... Um People trusted him, and they followed his instructions, not 100% of the time, but that was a large part of his success, is that people really trusted him and followed his lead. He writes about waiting for that first flu case, and I can imagine what that must have been like, reading the news, seeing what's happening all over the world, and and knowing that the flu is just ravaging communities. And, and of mm-hmm. course, this is during World War One, so it is killing off soldiers. It's such a terrible thing, and he is waiting for the first flu case mm-hmm. in Iowa. He actually asks if God has forgotten about him, which is such an odd, odd way to think about it. But he really felt called to serve and he was ready for that moment, wasn't he? He, he was. He, he, that's the title, The Thrills of My Life. And then he crossed something out and wrote, My Flu Life. Flu was his life. He was waiting and he was just on his feet as soon as he got that first patient. And then to involve his 12-year-old son to drive the sleigh. That's my father that he took all over to the flu patients, and neither of them got the flu. That that was really a contribution to bringing his own son. Right. Well, and tell me about that, because I'm sure your father told you so many stories about that. Your father was the oldest son in the family. He had several older sisters, but he was only 12 years old during Mm -hmm. this winter. He did have a love of vehicles, so he had learned (laughs) to drive the family car. Um, But your grandfather employed him as his driver. Do, Mm -hmm. Do you know why he did that? I think because he was right there. There were other people in town that drove him sometimes, but he could get up in the morning and my father's right there. So it, it was convenient. And it people have told me it's not all that unusual that a 12-year-old drove a car at the time. My mother said she drove a car all over their farm and on the country roads around there when she was 12. You didn't have to have a license in fact, they didn't have to have a license until they were in Chicago, and my dad was in medical school there, and she finally could join him. Uh, then they got a license. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that was something. It, I think if you could do it, you did it as a child in that time. Well, and and that was asking so much. I, I realize our, our feelings about children were different at that time. Children <laughs> did a whole lot of work that they would not be doing now. But that meant, again, that your father as a 12-year-old was out there with his father from morning until night mm-hmm. and uh, helping him, but also putting himself at risk. Did your grandfather ever talk about that, the the risk that he and the family were taking because, of course, this flu could have infected all of them? Not that I heard that. That's what he was born to do in his mind, I think. And he expected that of my father. And he credited uh, my grandmother for being in the house with six children all the way through the months of that flu 
And, and schools were closed. This was schools complete quarantine, right? Mm-hmm. So she she stepped up. Um, I have uh, one thing that didn't make the book. I have a recipe for lung soup during that time. They used every part of the animal, and, and the advice is put a plate on top because lungs tend to float. And I found that interesting because the lung is one of the things that is a problem when they got that flu. Within 24 hours, we don't have that if this flu. Within 24 hours, they described feet turning blue and lungs filling with water, and they drowned. And she's making lung soup from an animal. I just saw that connection. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. And and there's still lung is still in, in grocery stores, not not where I am, but it's it, it makes soup. <laughs> I'm talking with Mary Beth Sarter Obermeyer, and we're talking about the book When Winter Came, A Country Doctor's Journey to Fight the Flu Pandemic of 1918. It is about her grandfather, Dr. Pierre Sarter. And uh, Mary Beth, you mentioned the rules that he implemented, and, and he really was ahead of his time as far as his understanding of germ theory and the strict rules that he implemented or tried to implement for his patients. Tell me what his approach was. Well, at the time, even doctors did not know what was causing the flu, so he was really on his own. And he made a big jump to thinking it was airborne, and he was correct. And from there, he uh, decided the patient had to be, we had to know right away, the patient had to be isolated, and, and then the family had to be moved out to families that would care for them. And he trained a caretaker who he understood sterilization at that time. He was on the cusp of medicine when he was in medical school. He knew the germ theory. He knew he had to have an atomizer. He added open the windows with uh, liner shutters. Uh, That's that's pretty much it, except for the care that people saw him give when the patient was really ill. He was soothing and telling them, this is the way you should feel when you have the flu. Because when he was growing up, it was sort of, it was sinful if you were sick. You had Mm. done something and you're sick. These people had to know that this is the way they should feel. And he liked to use music. Uh, the, fam- the Winandi family in Chicago was loved to sing in music. So he felt music was soothing, and he felt if they had a religion that any any kind of prayer that he could learn in their religion would be helpful. And that, that's caring. Oh, and staying by their bedside. He didn't go home after a point. They went around the clock. And he would stay with the patient until the next patient. Wow. And that had to be soothing. I don't know how these things heal, but... <laughs> well, and it, you, you talk about having people take family members in because they needed mm-hmm. to be separated from the person who was ill. He was calling on the community and and relations to step up and care for people. And they did. Mm-hmm. They they absolutely yeah. again they they trusted him they followed his instructions and we we have about five minutes left and I want to talk about one of the stories that he wrote about he was taking care of a woman who was very sick with the flu and when he arrived um, 
at the house, the woman had her two-year-old child in bed with her, which, mm-hmm. of course, you know, that that looked lovely and natural to, to be snuggled up together. But um, that was a signal of danger to him. He thought, you know, this child will get sick. And so he told her that she needed to separate from the child. The child had to be in another room. Tell me what happened next. Well, this is the first chapter of the book. It's the only blizzard of the winter. What people don't realize a lot is that that was a muddy, warm winter, which was almost worse than snow. It was terrible. So he's going through a blizzard. He found what you just described. He's back home now going back again to check on her and thinking, oh, I should have had, his name, my dad's name was Guido, take uh, that baby to another family. I don't think, was she going to do what I asked? Well, he got there and the baby was in a bed in the corner of the room and that wasn't what he asked her to do, so he talked to her again. And the baby, mother was getting better, but the baby was ill. And she felt, she knew she'd done something wrong, not following his directions. And so she said, and it's in a convoluted sentence kind of, but it's her exact words in his words, a doctor, if you make that one well, I will do anything for you that you ask for. I think that that was the sentence. I don't know if I should give away what he said because it was so him and it's the end of the book and it connects to the beginning of the book where he's going to find I would love for you to tell us what he said because I think it tells us so much about your grandfather okay and no thinking he said some okay there's still a surprise after that so I won't give too much away but he says someday I would like you to come sing for me that's what he wants (laughs) he um He never was a wealthy man. He was a doctor. He served his patients. He was not very good at collecting um, their payments. Not if they couldn't pay. Right. And and in general, if they didn't, he still didn't collect. He just went on (laughs) treating people. He he was a man who clearly had a, a strong ethic and a strong purpose and a belief that he needed to be where he was needed. And he served for a very, very long time. He really was a remarkable man. Mary Beth, thank you so much for, for sharing his story. What do you hope people know and, and think about your grandfather when they read this? Well, I'm finding out now, these are the first times I'm meeting people, and they are all finding different things in this book about their ancestors they know they had the flu. They might know they died of it. Uh, they are valuing their family history and thinking about where they might research and find it and put it together. And I think um, just the inspiration of going where you're needed rather than what you would want to do just for your own pleasure, it's such an example that I think they, they, they will recognize that and cherish the people in their life that do that. Mary Beth, thank you so much. And uh, 
I, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Oh, I love this. Thank you. Mary Beth Sarter Obermeyer has written, When Winter Came, A Country Doctor's Journey to Fight the Flu Pandemic of 1918. It's the life story of her grandfather, Dr. Pierre Sarter. She'll be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City Sunday afternoon at 2. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Every year between January and March, male white-tailed deer shed their antlers. They'll grow a new set before next fall, and with each passing year, a buck's new antlers will grow larger. If you know where to look, and you're at least a little bit lucky, you might just find some of those shed antlers this time of year. Michael Mass is a naturalist with Buchanan County Conservation, and this weekend he'll be teaching young people how to search for shed antlers. The event is Saturday morning at 9 a.m. at Fontana Park in Hazleton. The event is free, but participants are asked to register in advance. Hello, Michael. Hey, how's it going, Charity? Great. Thank you so much for being here. And do we know why deer shed their antlers? Yeah, so deer are shedding their antlers um, because they are their testosterone is increasing um, at, during the rut, which the rut is when they need to find a, a female. And then after that time frame, when they, um, when the rut is finished, then they will go ahead and the change of the season will tell them, that's a relative term, but tell them to shed their antlers and to lose their antlers because they need to use that energy because it takes a lot of energy to grow antlers and to have them. Um, Then they will end up shedding them and losing them during the winter when it's a little bit harder to find food and that kind of stuff. All right. So during the rut, as you said, that's mating season and antlers are a really important part of mating season. Why are they so important for bucks during that time of year? Yeah, so the antlers are really important for the bucks uh, during the rut because they obviously have to show dominance over other males because it's important for them to be with as many females as possible and spread their genes. Um, So they are going to be having those antlers will help that process. And then also it's good for battling to battling the male, the other males that are competing over the females. So All right, so the the antlers are kind of part of attracting attention. The bigger the antlers, the more attention they might attract from does or from female deer. Yeah. But then when the competition comes into when there's more than one buck who wants to mate with a particular female or wants mm-hmm. to have a particular territory, I mean, they they use those antlers. They are weapons, right? Yeah. Yeah, they are. They sometimes have even been known to fight so much that they get their uh, antlers intertwined and then they end up basically like being stuck together and can't eat anymore. Uh, so they end up dying hooked together, Wow, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so after mating season is over and the testosterone starts to sort of ebb in their bodies. That's when they shed their antlers. And what do we know about that process? It it just sort of happens gradually that the antlers become loose? 
So yeah, so once that testosterone kind of wanes, um, they will end up losing their antlers one antler at a time. Uh, and generally, like you said at the beginning of the segment here, they generally shed between the months of December to March uh, here in Iowa. It's usually January and February. And they're falling off because they can't be putting that much energy into that anymore. And it's time for them to lose them. And then they will go through the whole cycle again and they will grow a whole whole nother set. So well, and that that is interesting. Before we talk about how to find the sheds, um, let's talk about that growth period because, all right, the antlers fall off. They've served their purpose. They grow new antlers. And that's a, such a fascinating period to me because as the antlers grow, they're covered by velvet, which is, I mean, they're soft on the outside if you are in a position where you get to actually touch an antler as it's growing. It's hot. It's really warm because there's all this blood flow. What's going on there? Yeah. So the antlers create this velvet on the outside of their antlers, and then they have that blood that's going in there. And that's actually what's helping grow the antlers and making them larger. Um, The blood flow and nutrients are flowing up into that tissue. And then once once the rut comes around or shortly before that, they will lose their velvet on them and then they stop growing and then they start to harden. So then they're ready for the rut season. So that would be, usually that's happening early fall is when they start the rut, but you know, end of summer, halfway through summer, they'll end up losing that velvet too. And losing that velvet seems to be kind of an itchy process, at least yeah. from what I've observed. I mean, they, they that's when deer will rub the bark off your tree sometimes or, or do things like that. I mean, they have to scrape that off, right? Yeah, they're you can walk through the woods and find buck rubs. I'm always, I have two kids, a six-year-old boy, Oliver, and a three-year-old girl named Amelia. And we'll go through the woods and we'll find them in the woods of fresh buck rubs. And yeah, you definitely know that they're trying to get that velvet off of their antlers. And when you see a buck, you really can get an idea for how old he might be by the size of those antlers. As as I said earlier, they, they get bigger every year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So each year they'll get bigger. Um, The bigger males will have obviously bigger antlers because they're older, they're stronger, they're getting more nutrients that are helping grow their antlers. Um, So they will, they will have much larger antlers. And those are usually the the more prized ones, right? It's a lot. Everybody always wants that big buck. (laughs) Absolutely. Prized by hunters, but also apparently prized by does. The does are impressed. Exactly. Yep. (laughs) They like that. By the large rack as well. So All right. Well, let's talk about sheds. Um, As as we covered earlier, when the testosterone ebbs, the antlers just kind of gradually fall off. And they don't necessarily fall off both of them at the same time, right? I mean, this is kind of an oddball process. Yeah. So usually they'll, one will fall off and then couple days might go past or maybe even more time than that and the next one will fall off and you don't know where it's going to be Um, and a lot of people have you know put out game cams and other things like that and they can see what buck it is and then they can go out and find those those hopefully a set you know if it's a set it's it makes it a little bit more rewarding I think so yeah 
Well, I and I be I see a lot of deer. I don't think I've ever seen a deer with just one antler, but you must be able to catch them in the process sometimes. Yeah, I guess so. I don't think I've ever seen it before either. I've been outside quite a bit and never have witnessed it. I think it would if you didn't know about this, I think it would look kind of goofy, you know. Yeah. Maybe maybe that that would be kind of weird, but but yeah, other animals also shed their antlers too, like moose and elk too. So because they're ungulates. And what are antlers? When they fall off, when you pick them up from the ground, I mean, they feel somewhat like bone. Are they bone? Yeah, so it is a bone that is growing. Um, and then like like we were talking about with the velvet covering them, that is supplying all of that blood and that's what's creating them. They're a lot softer when that process is going on. And then once they get to that hardened state where they're falling off, um, they're obviously harder, so then they can help the buck get his mates and all of that good stuff. All right. So that brings us to this time of year where out in the woods, in the grassy areas, just around, there are antlers on the ground right now that if, yeah. <laughs> if we go out and search for them, we may get lucky. We may be able to Maybe. find them. <laughs> and time is of the essence, right? Because once antlers fall to the ground, they don't necessarily last very long, right? Yeah. So usually uh, once they fall off, you know, if, if they're lucky, they'll get picked up by a shed hunter. And if not, there will also be maybe a mouse or a squirrel or another animal might end up chewing on that antler and, and getting the calcium and the nutrients that can be found inside of those antlers. So the park ranger that I work with, Jeremy, he actually just brought me in a shed uh, that was eaten by mice and different things. And he thinks that it was only out. I mean, three of the the points were just about gone in about three or four weeks. You know, he was out there and three or four weeks passed and he picked it up and that wasn't there then. So not, it doesn't take long for them to disappear. Well, that's so interesting because uh, I can imagine then for rodents in particular, this is a really great source of nutrition and at a time of year when nutrition can be pretty scarce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of animals right now are out looking for as much food as they can find or, you know, the food that they can find. It, it is it is a lot harder for them to survive right now. So this is a good source of nutrients. Yep. And I, I was looking around online and the advice is that the best time to go out and find antlers that have been shed is February 20th. I kept coming across that date. So here here we oh, really? are in the right week, oh, I guess. Look at that. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. Did. I didn't know that. So that's great. <laughs> well, this is this is internet wisdom, so you can't trust it 100%. But I mean, this is something where really late February yeah. and March is the time where if you're going to find sheds, this is the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is the best time of the year to go out and find them. I think uh, with our event coming up on Saturday, uh, we don't have a whole lot of snow. We're getting a lot of ice right now, um, but we do not have a lot of snow. So it will make it a little bit easier to be found. Whereas, you know, normally I think the end of February, there's a foot or so of snow on the ground yet. So those antlers tend to blend in a little bit more with the snow. So so if you want to, and you will be teaching your participants how to do this on Saturday morning, but if this is something you want to do, if you want to go out hunting for shed antlers, how do you start? 
Um, well, you know, we have all different kinds of great parks around the state. Um, you have county parks and state parks and city parks. Uh, you know, it doesn't really take a whole lot. Just kind of use your intuition. Think about where a deer might hang out. Look for those deer trails. Um, if you see a deer bed, uh, that would be a great spot to check. Or like I said, the deer trails, uh, any thick areas like thickets and that kind of stuff, they tend to be kind of in that area as well. But like I said, going out to county parks, uh, city parks, state parks, all of those areas are for everybody to use and utilize. Uh, you know, if you have private ground, that's great to head on out there. So the event that you're having on Saturday morning is designed for kids. I yeah. realize this is the first time you've done this event, but we're mm -hmm. talking about doing something that's pretty difficult. Some people are very, very good at finding sheds, but most of us will stumble across them maybe once or twice in a lifetime if, even, yeah. if we spend a lot of time outside. So you are making the success rate of the children <laughs> who'll be participating in your event a, a little more assured, right? Tell me how you're setting yes. this up. So uh, when they get to Fontana on Saturday morning at nine, we will do a short presentation kind of talking about what we're talking about right now. And then after that, we will go to an undisclosed, well, you'll find out what the park is right, on but Saturday. As of now, but you're not going to tell us. Yes, correct. So it's going, we're going to go to a different park other than Fontana. Uh, and we have 41 of them in Buchanan County for county parks. So, um, so we will go out to a different park and I will have placed roughly probably 30 sheds throughout the park. And I'll kind of give the participants a vicinity of where they're in and all of that good stuff. And then the, hopefully they'll be able to at least find one or two and some of them will be marked. And those ones, I think I'm planning on giving a few away. Um, so the ones that are marked with like a color on the bottom of them, the kids can take. Otherwise, if they bring one back to me, they'll get a special prize. Nice. So it's and definitely skewing it a little bit. Yeah, because you're not going to go out every single time and find 30 shed antlers in a, you know, 50 acre area. <laughs> right, right. But that's, it's good good to have some success early on. How yeah. have you collected all of these antlers? So luckily, I had posted something on Facebook, and there was a gentleman who reached out to me, actually from Burlington, Iowa, and his mother-in-law lived in Owine, and she had seen it on Facebook and sent him the message that we were in need of sheds, and he just really liked going out and shed hunting, and he said he was excited to have kids doing it too, so... Um, and then we had a couple other people more locally here in Independence and then uh, somebody from Old Wine as well who was donating some sheds. So Nice, nice. So yeah. people have stepped up and, and helped to contribute. And in collecting these sheds, I can imagine that probably not all of them are sheds that, that people have found. Have some of them come from harvested deer as well? Um, no, actually, I think almost all of them except one are from our deer sheds okay. and how you can tell is, you know, if it, if it's a, a harvested deer, you have to cut the antler off. Um, and then if it's a shed deer, you'll see the bottom part is all intact. So I have mostly shed antlers. I don't, I think there's one that I got that was cut. So. Are you good at finding shed antlers? Honestly, uh, I haven't really been 
going out very actively and looking for shed hunt sheds before. Um, <laughs> but I thought that it would be a good way to introduce people to our parks and to our different areas and getting them kind of thinking about a different way of hunting, you know, because we have deer hunting and we have, you know, fishing and we have all of those things and all of those cost money. This you really, I mean, just need a pair of shoes and a nice property to walk through, which there's a lot of those throughout the state. And you can go out and wander the woods and prairies and see what you can find. And it's great incentive to get outside during yeah. a time of year where it's easy to stay inside. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you're going to find other things along the way. And if, I mean, in my opinion, when I do go out, or if I've gone out before, you know, I'm going to be excited about other things other than just finding that. But maybe that's just because I'm a naturalist and get excited about everything outdoors. <laughs> so I know that your six-year-old is planning to come to the event on Saturday. Do you have an, a suggested age range for people who might want to participate? Yeah, so I would say for the, you know short presentation, I think probably eight and up, but I think in general, I mean, this is a family friendly event. The presentation in the nature center is only going to be probably about a half an hour at the very most, and then we'll load up and head over to the other park, uh, but definitely oriented for families and, um, people of all ages are really welcome to come. I'm not going to discriminate if they don't have a kid, uh, but everybody can come. So how many kids do you have signed up so far? Uh, right now, I think I'm up to about 33 people total. I don't remember how many kids I'd say over half of that are kids. So, nice. and there's yeah. still an opportunity for people to get involved. Yeah, there is. So uh, if you go to BuchananCountyParks.com and you can get registered there, uh, just click on the public events tab there and then you can get registered through that website. Michael, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Charity. It was a blast. Michael Mass is a naturalist with the Buchanan County Conservation Board, and this weekend he'll be teaching young people how to search for shed antlers. The event is Saturday morning at 9 a.m. at Fontana Park in Hazleton. It is free, but participants are asked to register in advance. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Neppy.